2023 has been a great year at Southview. We've seen spiritual growth. Uh, There was a Facebook post that showed that we've got, I believe, nine home groups and uh, Bible studies going at this point. We've seen numerical growth. Uh, We're up, I think, 5% over last year. We've seen financial growth and that our budget is actually looking quite good and you know, today is the last day to get in your offerings for 2023, but we've seen growth. We've seen God at work, but more than all of those things, we've grown in our prayer life. I was talking with my neighbor, and my neighbor told me, he said, so I was talking with a member of your church. I said, oh, you were? He said, yeah. He said, and I asked, why is Southview successful? What is it that is making Southview successful? And your neighbor told me it was prayer. And said, well, he's right. Prayer is what is making our church successful because it's God who leads the church. And when we pray, we spend time with God. We're going to double down in prayer. And so as I thought about this, how do we double down in prayer? I thought, well, Daniel's a good example. Daniel had a a fervent, vibrant prayer life. So we're going to do a series on the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel did much more than pray. But prayer, I believe, as I look through Daniel, was always at the center of the things that Daniel was doing. You see, I think as a church, as we go into this next year, we want to grow our prayer time. We're going to be praying for the services often. We're going to be praying on Wednesdays at noon. But I hope that beyond that, you are praying regularly and digging into prayer. Why? Because prayer leads to relationship with God. If you're in a relationship with God, spend time in prayer. Relationship is what leads to faithfulness. So how do we grow in our faithfulness to our God? I believe the answer is prayer. Think about it for just a second. The people that you are faithful to are people that you have a relationship with or people that you know nothing about. They're people you have a relationship with. Faithfulness comes from relationship. Relationship comes from spending time together. And with God, that looks like prayer. So you might be saying, yeah, I get it. I'm supposed to be praying differently. But I live in the real world. And in the real world, life is hard. You see, you're the pastor and you spend all your time in the four walls of the church building or at home in your office studying. And in the real world, life is different. And you know what I say to that? You're right. It is. It's hard. Outside of the four walls of this building, it is hard to live as a Christian. It is hard to dedicate time to prayer. It's hard to dedicate time to devotion. It's hard to be obedient. It's true. It's very true. Don't let anyone ever tell you that it is easy to follow Christ. But as I look at the book of Daniel, I'm reminded that actually, this is the situation Daniel found himself in. So you can start turning to Daniel chapter 1. Well, I sort of set the stage that this life following Christ is hard, but we can do it. In 722 BC, so 3,700 years ago, in 722 BC, the nation of Israel, that's the northern nation, the ten northern tribes, fell to this empire called the Assyrian Empire. But the nation of Judah still remained strong. In fact, they would go on for more than a hundred years more. 
By 612 BC, though, the Assyrian Empire was no more. The capital of Assyria had fallen to this up-and-coming power called Babylon, led by a general named Nebuchadnezzar. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar finally attacked the city of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had a very powerful strategy for how they did things. They would capture a city, and then they would take the best and the brightest out of that city and haul them back to the capital city of Babylon. Literally a brain drain. They would pull the best and brightest out of the city. Why? To train them to be Babylonians, eventually maybe to send them back so that the city would submit to Babylonian authority. So Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. Actually, he attacks it three times before he finally completely conquers it. And in 586, the walls of Jerusalem fall, and all of the best and brightest nobility of Jerusalem have been taken away to the city of Babylon. That's where Daniel 1 starts. Daniel and his three friends have been taken out of Jerusalem, out of the comfort of God's country, out of the comfort of God's temple. It's been destroyed out of everything that they know of God, and they have been placed in this new place that doesn't know God, that doesn't want anything to do with God. And the question is, how are these men going to live outside the four walls of God's place? That's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 1. And what we're going to see is that as Christians, we can learn that we're called to live in the world, but not of the world. We're called to live in the world, but not of the world. Therefore, you can expect to face temptation. You should expect it. It's going to be hard. But as you face temptation, you can remember that obedience to God is worth it. So let's start with Daniel 1, verses 1 through 6. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What I want you to see here is that we are called to live in the world, but not of the world. We are called out to live in the world, but not of the world. What does this look like? Well, the text starts off with some important insights, some important hints, actually some historical markers. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Jerusalem. But look at verse 2. It was God who was in control of this. Verse 2 tells us the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, 
king of Judah into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar may have thought he conquered Jerusalem. Everybody else may have thought Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem, but it was actually God who did it. It was God who was placing these young men into the Babylonian court. In the ancient Near East, kings would go to war on behalf of their gods, to take territory on behalf of their gods, to capture slaves on behalf of their gods. And in Daniel 1, verse 2, we are told it wasn't the gods of Nebuchadnezzar who had done this. It was actually the god of Jerusalem. Adonai is the term used, which means Lord. The conquest was at the bequest of Adonai, Elohim, the Lord. We are called to live life in the world. God places us in the world. Have you ever thought about the fact that, you know, at the moment of salvation, God could just rapture you up to heaven right then? If God wanted to, he could. He doesn't. Instead, he places us in the world. We are not of the world, but we are in the world. And following Jesus, therefore, needs to be a part of our life outside of the walls of this church. We are called to follow Jesus outside the walls of this church. God moved the people of Judah out of the promised land. He placed them into a foreign land with a foreign religion, with foreign customs, and foreign influence. But it was God who had done that. It wasn't an accident. It may have seemed like the gods of Babylon were all-powerful, but in fact, it was the Lord who was exercising this right. When you leave the building today, you will enter a world that rejects, denies, and even mocks the God we serve. But it doesn't mean we stop following Jesus. No, following Jesus is a part of life regardless of where we're at. What happens next in our story of Daniel and his friends furthers this idea. The text tells us that some of the best of Israel were brought into the service of Nebuchadnezzar. The use of the title Israelites in verse 3 is actually really significant. Think through the history for just a second. In 722 BC, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. So when Daniel writes that Nebuchadnezzar took Israelites, it can't refer to the northern nation. They haven't existed for over 100 years. What Daniel is saying is Nebuchadnezzar took God's people. Israelites were God's people. And so Daniel is identifying himself and his friends, who later he tells us are Judites, as God's people. We, as followers of Jesus, are God's people, and he has placed us in the world as missionaries to the world. He wants us to live for him. And we're going to see how Daniel and his friends did just that. But God wants us to show who he is to the world in which we live. In fact, I would say that you've been placed on the mission field in your day-to-day life. Because if you're a Christ follower, you are one of God's people. You've been placed into the world, a world that is hostile toward God. And God has specifically put you where he wants you. When you leave the confines of this building, you enter a foreign land and you represent the God of the universe to that land. So here's the parallel that I'm trying to argue. 
Just as Daniel and his friends were taken away from their homeland of Judah, away from the temple, away from the God they knew, and put into a foreign land, so are each of us taken out of the comfort zone of the four walls of this church. All right, you guys know this is kind of a maze. There's more than four walls. But we're taken outside the comfort zone of this church, and we are placed on the mission field. It would have been hard for Daniel and his four friends, or sorry, three friends. In verse four, we learn that Ashpenaz was given a task. He was to teach these young men the language and literature of Babylon. So the language of Babylon, the spoken language, would have been Aramaic. Aramaic and Hebrew are very closely related languages. Uh, If you know Hebrew, you can learn Aramaic very quickly. Uh, It's usually like a semester-long course for people who know Hebrew. It's a very similar language. However, the literature of Babylon, the writing of Babylon, was all done in a much older language called Akkadian. Akkadian is very old, very complicated language. There's a hundred and some symbols in Akkadian that you'd have to learn. So your alphabet's over a hundred characters long. Furthermore, the way you learn Akkadian, the way at least that we have, that the Babylonians would teach it, is you would, first of all, learn the symbols by reading and copying down texts. So they'd hand you a text, you'd read it and copy it down. Now, the texts the Babylonians used were religious Babylonian texts. So texts about the Babylonian mythology. So when we read in verse 4, the Ashpenaz was to take them and teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. We really should read, Ashpenaz was given the job of enculturating them into Babylonian life. Day in and day out, you're going to read Babylonian religious texts. Day in and day out, you're going to master Babylonian religious texts. In other words, we want you to forget who you were before. We want you to completely ignore who you were before. That God that was over in that land of Jerusalem that you knew, forget him. We're going to force you to learn our God. That's the position that Daniel and his friends were in. But there's an important reminder in verse 6. No matter your title or your position, remember, you follow Christ. Look at what happens in verse 6. We're told their names. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel. God is my judge, a name that refers to God. Hananiah. Yahweh has acted graciously, if you translate that one. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. And Mishael, who is like El, who is like God. There in verse 6, tucked in, in the middle of this discussion of enculturation, is a reminder. These four followed God. Nebuchadnezzar is going to do everything he can to erase God. But there's a reminder. These four follow God. No matter your title or position, you must remember that you follow Christ. That must be your identity. When you leave this building, 
you go out into the mission field. But don't forget, your identity is Christ. Let me actually turn this into an action step. I want you to take a second. I want you to reflect on the world in which you live and ask this question. What is my mission field? We all have one. We better. We all will leave this building at some point today. I think everybody's going home before New Year's Eve party, so we'll all leave this building at some point today. What is your mission field? I'll tell you mine. I give a lot of airplane examples. Why? Because that's actually the airport is my mission field, I decided. Since I work here at the church, I spend a lot of time here. I spend a lot of time with Christians. And so one of the things that I needed to do personally was find a place where I'm going to spend some time with other people that I can tell about the gospel. And for me, that's the airport. If I'm not at the church and I'm not at home, I'm probably at the airport. Pastor David does the same thing. If he's not at the church and he's not at home, he's probably teaching golf at the high school. It's his mission field, his opportunity to reach non-Christians. You all who don't have jobs in the church building have an abundance of mission fields. What is your mission field? When you leave this building, who do you impact? How can you impact them? We're going to continue on, though. Given that we're on the mission field, we can expect to encounter temptation. Let's read verses 7 through 10. Daniel writes, The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. I want us to recognize that because we are on the mission field, We can expect to encounter temptation. When we leave the walls of this building, you can expect temptation to hit. Daniel and his friends were faced with temptation. The first aspect of temptation that arose for these three friends was a temptation to forget their identity. In verse 7, we see, these four men whose names previously reflected the God who they served are given new names. The new names are Babylonian names that extol Babylonian gods. Your name used to extol Yahweh, so let's get rid of that. We don't want you to remember him. Let's give you names that remind us of Babylonian gods. The temptation at this point would have been to abandon their loyalty to God. Nobody would have known. Nobody there understood their loyalty to God. Think about it. You're in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, who's just conquered Jerusalem. You live in a world where people think that conquest is done in the name of God. So you're sitting in this court of the one who has just defeated your city, and you say, but I want to serve the God from Jerusalem. And they all look at you and say, you mean the God that lost? You want to serve that God? It would have been really easy, really easy for Daniel and his friends 
to just say, you know what? Let's ignore the God of Jerusalem. Let's ignore the real God. These Babylonian gods are good enough for us. Nobody here cares about our God. Nobody here wants to hear about him. Let's just live life and enjoy what we've been given. We'll see that they didn't. See, on the mission field, you are going to encounter people who don't understand that you follow Christ. They don't understand why you care so much about Christ. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Why in the world do you get up early on Sunday morning? Don't you realize that's the one day a week you can sleep in? Why would you skip a school activity on Wednesday night to go to this thing called Awana? Who knows what that is? What do you mean you're not going to watch this? Everyone else does. People don't understand who our God is. People didn't understand who Daniel's God is. They changed his name to try to erase him. But it went more than that. In fact, Daniel was faced with minor temptations to sin. In verses 8 and 9, we have Daniel finally has to take a stand on something. Apparently, he was willing to deal with Babylonian education. He's willing to let people call him by a different name. He's not going to make a big deal of that. But then he hits something that he can't budge on. His convictions won't let him. Food. The Babylonians wanted him to eat food that for some reason was off limits to Daniel. There's all sorts of theories as to why this food was off limits, and I haven't found a satisfactory one. Some people say, well, it was because the food had been offered to an idol. Well, guess what? They, they also offer vegetables to idols. So I, I don't know that that's it. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was pork. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Daniel cannot in good conscience eat the food that has been presented to him. And so he takes a stand. It would defile him is what we learn. Understand how minor this really truly is as a temptation. It's food. That's all it is, is food. Not a big deal. But for Daniel's conscience, it was. This minor temptation to Daniel represented abandoning his God. And so Daniel had to take a stand. So he does. He asks for permission not to eat that food. And what happens is, is really a very logical argument. And this is the thing I want to sort of emphasize here, is on the mission field, when you go out of these doors, you are, going to prefer, you are going to be presented with reasonable arguments to disobey God. Reasonable and logical arguments why you should disobey God. The argument that Ashpenaz gives to Daniel is actually a very logical argument. Look, Daniel, it's just food. You don't eat it, your head's going to go. Makes sense to eat the food, right? I mean, that, that, that actually is pretty good logic. Would you rather eat the food and, you know, your conscience is twinged a little bit? Or you could die. And, by the way, it's going to cost me my life, too, if I can't get you to eat this food. It's a good logical argument. In the world in which we live, we are regularly faced with good logical arguments to disobey. 
Think about it. Go ahead, drive 85 miles an hour on the interstate because everyone else is doing it. And actually, you're causing more problems if you drive 75. Have you heard that one? There's all sorts of logical arguments that people make for us to disobey God in these seemingly minor areas. No. We need to ask ourselves an important question. As we go out on the mission field, ask yourself, what temptations am I facing on the mission field? Maybe you're tempted to sacrifice in your prayer life because time just gets away from you. I, that's what I found that when I do pray, especially as we've doubled down on prayer, I found that I have less time for prayer, it seems like. And then I found that when I do pray, I always have more time than I thought I did. And when I don't pray, I always run out of time. Kind of weird how that works. <laughs> Skip your devotions this week. You don't have time for it. You could dabble in that sin over there. It's, it's not really that bad if you just are careful. God told you to talk to that person about about salvation, well, they'll probably judge you, so I'd pass on that today. We face temptations on the mission field to sin. And they are minor temptations. That's the thing that I really want to emphasize. There's big temptations out there. But we tend to win on those. We tend to do pretty good on big temptations. But there's lots of little minor temptations that we oftentimes overlook I want us to hear and now determine to turn our temptations over to God. Let's read verses 11 through 21. Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. What I want you to do is I want you to remember that obedience is worth it, even when it seems that nobody is watching. Obedience is worth it, even when it seems that nobody is watching. Daniel and his three friends are in the king's court, and they choose obedience, faced with a logical argument for why they should just suck it up and eat the food. Nobody would know. Just do it, Daniel. Daniel instead is faithfully devoted to his God. But more than just faithful devotion, he actually trusts his God. Daniel meets the logic of the official with his own logic, his own test. And it's, it's a very brilliant test, really, that Daniel comes up with. He tells Ashpenaz, essentially, I hear what you're saying, but, but 
this food thing is, is a big issue. I hear that. I understand what you're saying. I understand your argument. So let me, let me propose this to you. How about we do something different for 10 days? Because in 10 days, you'll be able to know whether I'm healthy or not, and it won't have done any permanent damage. If I don't eat your royal food for 10 days, it's not going to do permanent damage, but you're going to know pretty fast if my God's going to take care of me or not. So Ashpenaz accepts, they accept this proposal, or at least the, the, the royal official, the guard, accepts this proposal, says he'll give it a try. On the mission field, you're going to be presented with opportunities to stand in obedience. You will be presented with opportunities to stand in obedience. And often it might be in the simple things. It might be something simple like inviting somebody to attend church with you playing a Christian song on the radio, or choosing to prioritize church over a particular event. You will have opportunities to stand in big ways, but the little ways, I think, are the things that are going to be incredibly impactful. I think we oftentimes think, you know, if I was asked to give my life for Jesus, I would give my life for Jesus. Great, wonderful. But you might not be being asked that right now. Instead, you might be being asked to give the next 10 minutes for Jesus. If you didn't give your life, would you give him the next 10 minutes? Oftentimes, though, we fail on these little things. And we say we're going to win on the big things. We need to invert that. We need to focus on winning on the little things. Don't worry about the big things yet. They're not here. Let's have small victories now. Daniel had a small victory. But by winning on the little thing. He was given the opportunity to see God's blessing. You see, on the mission field, you will be presented with opportunities to see God's blessing. Verses 18 through 21 are actually really interesting from a a literary, literary standpoint. Nebuchadnezzar, throughout chapter one, has tried to erase God. Daniel does not use the name Nebuchadnezzar After verse 1, he talks to him about the king. Now, 17 verses later, in verse 18, he reintroduces the name Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because this king who tried to erase God is just about to find out who this God really is. Throughout the book of Daniel, we're going to see this. It's oftentimes Nebuchadnezzar versus God. And Daniel has brought this out in a very strong way by reintroducing us to Nebuchadnezzar's name using the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and bringing this all together to tell us that this is a God's blessing. And what do they find? That Daniel and his friends are 10 times better than all of the other court officials, nobles. Some of you have taken some time to study a foreign language. Have you ever tried to read a book, like in Spanish, or in German, or in French, or any of the foreign languages that you've studied. It's one thing to be able to hear a little bit of a foreign language and sort of understand what's being said. It's another thing to be able to be academic in a foreign language. That's a whole different level. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are ten times better than the people who were born in Babylon, than the people who learned the language from birth. 
God has blessed their obedience. And what we see is that on the mission field, others should notice that there is something different about you. I am convinced others will notice if we truly are obedient in the little things, others are going to notice there's something different about him. There's something different about her. So what do you do with this? I think, one, let's have victory in the little things. But two, let's look for opportunities to give God the glory for the blessings that you are receiving on the field. God blesses abundantly. God blessed Daniel abundantly. We'll see this play out time and time again. Let's look for the opportunities to give God the glory. So this Daniel, this prayer warrior, who had a relationship with God, we see time and time again, was faithful in the little things and saw great victory. Let's be devoted to God, faithful in the little things, obedient. In 2024, let's dare to be a Daniel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the relationship that we can have with you. We thank you for the call to obedience. We thank you for the lesson that we have from Daniel and for the faithfulness that Daniel showed that can be a model for each of us. I pray that we would dare to be like Daniel, to make him a model that we can follow as we follow Christ. Ultimately, that we would obey you in every aspect of our lives, big or little, major or minor. Help us to dare to obey and to see your blessing. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.